Good afternoon. I am Dr. Jill Brooks, Director of Education for First Healthcare Compliance. I'd like to welcome back our many return listeners and extend a warm welcome to our new registrants. Our goal here at First Healthcare Compliance is to provide a single source solution to help healthcare providers comply with every federal regulation. Please contact us if you have any questions or would like to schedule a quick demo of our software. Our team is available to you from 9 in the morning until 8 p.m. at night Eastern Standard Time. We are happy to bring different experts to you every month with our free noontime webinars. Today, we have Jennifer Kirschenbaum, an attorney managing the healthcare department of Kirschenbaum and Kirschenbaum. She will be discussing controlled substance safeguards. Jennifer? Thank you, Dr. Brooks. I very much appreciate this opportunity to address the audience for such an important topic and one that's so incredibly relevant. Before we get started today uh, with our, our topic, I wanted to just briefly give a description about our firm services. This way, if anyone has any questions, they can understand what to tie uh, us into. And uh, I think that's important because this is kind of a very um, independent topic we're doing today with the controlled substance safeguards. So just so you know, my credentials and where we're coming from, we represent healthcare providers and also uh, billing experts and coding experts in uh, their assistance for healthcare providers on a day-to-day. And we regularly deal with issues with insurance companies and compliance, HIPAA compliance, self-referral issues, anti-kickbacks, self-disclosure problems, healthcare litigation, problems with employees, problems with competitors, uh, problems with vendors, uh, practice contracts and transactional matters, and we regularly handle licensure issues which come up uh, related to substance uh, safeguard all the time, um, collections, and then general, general practice management representation. So why are controlled substances such a hot topic? Um, well, it's incredibly important that we're covering this topic right now because the U.S. Attorney's Office on a federal level nationwide and the District Attorney Offices, um, both of those are criminal, are really ramping up their uh, review and compliance activities related to uh, pain medication. And one of the biggest issues that all of our practices face is, you know, do we prescribe, should we not prescribe, and if we are prescribing and have it on site, how do we actually protect our patients and our staff from bigger issues that may come about um, from having the controlled substances on site and, and prescribing? So for our first uh, part of the webinar today, which is going to be a short half-hour uh, lunch seminar, um, I want to explain a couple of scenarios that have happened recently that are examples of what type of oversight is going on currently in the country. Now, this Dr. Hassan, who we're going to speak about first, um, I think, you know, is a bit of a more egregious example and clearly had uh, some very poor judgment and was not properly protecting his patients or his practice from potential abuse. And it's a significant uh, divergent example on what can happen with controlled substances. So this St. Louis doctor was arrested and is going to be facing potentially five years in prison and, um, and, and significant fines because basically he left his nurse in charge to conduct patient visits and to provide his patients with assorted 
pre-signed prescriptions for controlled substances. And after the fact, and this is how he actually got busted, sorry about this, um, he uh, directed his staff to bill Medicare for the face-to-face office visits that he obviously was not present for. Now, how did this come about? How was this doctor reported? Well, the DEA received a number of complaints about Dr. Hassan's prescribing practices, and they also included in that received a report of an overdose in his parking lot. So this was what we would consider to be uh, a prescription pill mill, um, essentially, is what the DEA has tried to frame this practice as uh, by by highlighting the pre-signed prescriptions and as well as, you know, the medical record issue here for the individual patients. Um, they, they did not say that there was medically necessary um, documentation for the prescriptions, and clearly the doctor was not here. So this is an extreme example of exposure. This is another similar example from the Kansas doctor who is, lost his license for letting staff distribute prescriptions. Now, this is very different from the majority of us who are on the call who seek to be compliant and are, are taking care of our offices on day-to-day um, to not have these things happen. These people uh, admitted, these Dr. Schuster admitted uh, that staff members uh, were directed and allowed to distribute controlled substances to patients using blank prescription pads that he had signed in advance. And uh, actually, the government had reported that approximately over 540 patients who received prescriptions for controlled substances um, uh, while he was out of the office. And again, this individual is going to face significant potential prison time and significant fines um, against him for his, uh, his activity. Now, this type of egregious conduct is not what I want to kind of highlight for you as far as... Um, uh, what we can do every day to protect ourselves from potential exposure and how we should be keeping. But it's important to highlight the, the vast end of the spectrum so we can understand kind of the middle end. Um, these are just recent headlines from New York. And the reason why I'm pointing to headlines is, is that this is big news. This is a major area of concern. And there are plenty of other less egregious examples that we can talk about, which I will talk about as soon as we make it through this portion of the webinar. So recently, the New York Daily News highlighted that a Bronx-based uh, drug ring had dispensed nearly $550 million worth of oxycodone pills. Um, and this came out in February of 2014, so it's fairly recent. Now, um, this is clearly, again, another example of egregious activity. Uh, here we had another news station that was um, highlighting another separate oxycodone ring and uh, also a third from Village Voice from June 2012, uh, prescription pills for uh, two doctors and a nurse highlighting the epidemic of oxycodone. So this is very much in the press. It's a very public topic. Um, I will tell you some scenarios that I have in my practice that we've dealt with that are less egregious on how to stay out of the headlines. Um, I do have a primary care physician that I'm working with, who of course will remain nameless. Um, that has had the DEA lurking around his office for some time now. And he is a Suboxone writer and um, authorized so. And this is a problem that I see with the government involvement, is that I have the DEA agents who are coming in. Um, they uh, are not doctors. They do not have medical backgrounds. They um, 
admittedly, you know, we've, we've gone through their, their credentials, and they have decided that, uh, you know, they have a level of um, discretion into what they're going to look into and how they're going to investigate claims. And they've decided that, that my client, who um, by all accounts from experts is, is writing a prop- appropriate prescription, is potentially uh, misusing um, his, his ability to write for prescriptions. And the problem is, is that with a lot of these agencies, with the DEA, with the U.S. Attorney, with the DA's office, they have a mandate that they're supposed to be cracking down. And if you happen to have the type of practice where you have um, potentially pain-seeking behavior drugs, uh, patients, but you're not terminating appropriately, or even if you are, they may report you, of course, because they're very angry that you're not giving them their drugs. Uh, right, and then you may find yourself under some sort of inquiry, and that's very scary when you have a licensure authority calling you, or worse, a, a criminal agency calling you and asking questions. You automatically feel guilty that you know you're not doing the right thing by your patients, and what if you're doing something wrong? And um, that's kind of the state of affairs that I see us in, and, and of course, this hopefully is just a trend, and you know, every couple of years the trends change. So I'm hoping that this is not going to be something that we're going to have continued issues with, um, this type of crackdown on controlled substances the way that we do right now. But right now it's a very, very hot topic. So what we wanted to do today and why Dr. Brooks thought that this was such an important topic for us to go over is to just highlight for you the recommended standards for storing controlled substances because this is one way to keep you very much out of trouble. Um, is to follow the proper guidelines. Now, the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, has put forth a number of established standards for the storage and safeguarding of controlled substances, which is applicable to everyone. Whether you are calling in from New York or Hawaii or Georgia or uh, Tennessee, this was applicable to everyone on the call. All substances must be stored in a securely locked cabinet of substantial construction. What does that mean? That's pretty subjective, Jennifer. I'm not really sure that I'm meeting that requirement at the moment. Well, if you're not sure if you're meeting the requirement, you probably are not. (laughs) If, If you are storing your substances in a easily removable lockbox that could be lifted right out of your office, then you are not using a substantially constructed uh, construct to, to lock up your substances. Or maybe you have uh, your substances in a, um, a drawer or a fridge that everyone has a key to. Well, that's not going to be securely locked. Uh, this should be a, um, a, uh, a locking device in your practice that limited individuals have access to and would be very, very difficult to remove. Additional factors that we want to consider is the location of the premises and the relationships of location bears on the security needs. Um, Now, what this is going to mean, and some of these are subjective, is, you know, where is your storage going to be? And why should it be there necessarily? Now, the storage we want, um, obviously, to be located near patient care, 
but should we be locking drugs in treatment rooms? Um, I would say no, that controlled substances should not be located in treatment rooms because patients oftentimes, unfortunately, do have drug-seeking behavior, and we want to make sure that they do not have access uh, in a room they may be left alone in to search for and potentially access controlled substances. So I would say that this should be in more of a secure area of your practice where there will be less foot traffic and, and limited access. Um, and obviously these factors below, which you're probably reading now, can be taken into account when picking that location. The type of building you have an office construction, um, type and quantity of controlled substance to store on the premises, what has to be refrigerated, what doesn't have to be, um, if it has to be kept in certain temperature control. You know, these are all factors that are coming to place for storage. Um, type of storage medium, are you using a safe, vault, or steel cabinet? These are recommended by the DEA, so in case you are still confused about what this substantial construction means, they're looking for a safe, a vault, or steel cabinet. Um, they are not looking for something that is easily breakable. Uh, please don't go online and buy, you know, a very simply constructed, easily dismantled storage device from Target, put it together and think that you are adhering to your responsibility to store your controlled substances. That is not going to be good. Um, you want to control public access. Obviously, we're not storing controlled substances in a cabinet in our waiting room. If we are, please move it. Um, the adequacy of registrants monitoring system. Do we have an alarm system in place or a detection system? Do you have cameras in the office? Um, I highly recommend that you do have cameras in the office, which you are allowed to have anywhere where a patient or employee would not have an expectation of privacy. So anywhere where someone may be changing or a restroom, those are the only places really that you wouldn't be authorized to have a camera. Um, so I would recommend that you do put those in place. And a lot of times, uh, monitoring by camera and alarm system is only adding a couple of extra dollars to your overhead per month. A really not expensive system, you know, usually lease that, and uh, I definitely recommend that you have that in place. Um, the availability of local police protection. If you are seeing a, a lot of um, pain patients, then you may want to open up a dialogue with your local law enforcement and let them know, hi, you know what, I'm really taking a look at my pain practice and I, I may need to call you in if I decide to terminate a number of patients. Um, I, I might need some assistance with that. And don't be afraid to call the police. Um, I get calls all the time from clients of, Jennifer, I just don't know what to do. I have a very angry, potentially violent patient in my waiting room. And I, I go outside and deal with it, which I'd like to do because they're harassing my staff. I'm, I'm actually concerned about my safety. You should be concerned about your safety. I have gotten calls where I've actually had doctors who have been punched in the face or physically assaulted by a very angry patient. My response to you in these scenarios, it doesn't matter if it's a client calling me from down the block or a client calling me out of the state, is going to be the same. I would love to help you directly, but the direct help that I can give you is that you have to call 911. And you should feel comfortable doing that because that's what that service is there for you. And if the police will come and be responsive um, and assist you with this patient problem. Additional security considerations that the DEA has specified. 
is practitioners are expected to create institutional procedures to reduce access to controlled substances. And you are required to notify the DEA of any loss or theft. You want to make sure that you're adopting this on a practice policy level, um, which means that you are training on it for those who are um, should be in the know, which would be any prescribing doctors in the office um, and staff with access, uh, which should be limited. We want to make sure that we are adhering to this requirement. The DEA also specifies that registrants should not employ as an agent or employee anyone who has access to controlled substances, who has been convicted of a felony offense related to controlled substances, seems pretty obvious. Any person who has been denied a DEA registration, any person who has a DEA registration revoked, or any person who has surrendered DEA registration. This should seem obvious, but the issue is, is that many of us on the call are not performing our necessary background checks on our employees. And every single practice, almost, I could say, has been guilty of this at one time or another, or the majority of the time or all the time. You want to make sure that you're doing your due diligence on your staff, because I can tell you that the biggest problem that you have likely as, as a practice and an employer are the people who are working for you, which leads me to one of my biggest concerns that the DEA is addressing here generally, but that I see specifically as the largest problem. Your staff is more likely to be taking controlled substances out of your office and prescription pads than your patients. You must lock up any and all prescription pads on a regular, uh, on, on a, a regular basis that's not really saying it clearly enough. In every instance, please do not keep extra prescription pads that are not on your person out on your desk. They must be locked at all times, okay? If you're prescribing electronically, which many of us are now through our EMR system, the access to that portion of your EMR system should be locked and there should only be very specific, limited number of individuals who have access to that functionality and can perform that on your behalf. This will be your biggest area of exposure. Um, which I can tell you not only just from my uh, background, but from my experience, that your staff will be the biggest problem that you have to adhering to applicable uh, requirements for controlled substance safeguarding. Additional considerations that we have um, from the DEA, this is still the DEA, is that practitioners are expected to create institutional procedures um, to reduce access to controlled substances and to notify the DEA of any loss or theft, which he's already talked about. I want to re-highlight again the employee factors that we want to be looking for and how do we find this out. Well, a simple background search that either your payroll company or HR functionality can, can process, or if you need assistance and you don't have anyone who does this, our firm certainly can help. Simple background check will uncover, uh, cover any convictions for any potential individuals. You should get their consent um, in writing to perform the background check prior to hiring. We can check whether or not the DEA has revoked any of their access. 
or if they've surrendered for cause, um, and this is incredibly important. I recommend that each of you on the line adopt internal protocols and written policies that address this area specifically. Not only should you be adopting written policies, but you should be following them. And that will not only keep you protected from potential inquiry or actual uh, violation of these requirements, but it will also serve as a basis for any defense should there be an inquiry into your practice. I mentioned before that patient complaints could lead to a potential inquiry. And I can tell you that from the licensure work that I do and our firm does, the biggest area that we see or most frequency for reporting is for pain-seeking behavior patients who are denied their medications. They are very, very angry, as I don't have to tell you. And they look for um, punishment against those who have wronged them and who have not given them what they're looking for. And they will call anyone who they can. The easiest place for them to call in many states, New York included, is licensure. The Office of Professional Medical Conduct in New York, it's called the same in many states or, or some, some variation of that uh, title, is required in this state and many states to investigate any and all complaints that are received. And um, in New York State, it's predominantly medical professionals, nurses, mainly nurses, and uh, licensed doctors who are reviewing these complaints and um, investigating claims. And oftentimes they are very, um, they are empathetic to the practitioner uh, after receiving this type of complaint because they've experienced it oftentimes in their practice themselves, drug-seeking behavior. But I can tell you that they will sometimes or oftentimes ask for written support that you can show that you are adhering properly to um, controlled substance. Uh, safeguarding requirements that you have policies and procedures in place that will protect your patients from uh, from, uh, from from this type of potential abuse. And um, if we don't have it in place, it makes my job a lot harder to close out the investigation for you. And similarly, it makes it harder for you to adopt a standardized protocol for yourself that you can train on when you hire new staff. So. If I could give you one piece of advice, um, other than you know the, the physical safeguards that you should have in your practices for controlled substance safeguarding, it would be um, to make sure that you're taking these positive steps for, for your staff and also for your internal protocols and procedures. So I hope that this has been helpful. It's uh, somewhat of a short topic because we're doing federal only and not just um, state by state. And I'm happy to take any questions or concerns that you may have related to this topic at any time. Again, my name is Jennifer Kirschenbaum, and I can be reached at this, this information. Uh, we do have additional articles available on our website, and we do a, a free uh, newsletter, usually once or twice a week. And any questions or concerns, you can feel free to direct them to me. And at this time, I'd like to turn it back over to Dr. Brooks. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer. Um, that was really wonderful. If you have any questions for her, please use the contact information on the screen. Please register for our upcoming free monthly webinars at our website. 
And if you have any questions for us, please contact us at our website, 1sthec.com. All right, thank you.